this morning, I want to take a little bit of a, a side trail here today and, and talk about, uh, really talk about the Isaiah chapter 43. And I've entitled the message, Between a Rock and a Hard Place, uh, because it's a, a really unique prophecy for a whole lot of different reasons. And uh, I thought it would be a great way to start the new year, particularly with a prophecy that was given and a prophecy that was fulfilled. Because one of the reasons we study prophecy is because it not only foretells us of what's going to happen, but past fulfilled prophecies also confirm to us the reliability of what the Bible has to say. You see, the Bible is about one-third prophecy. Eighty percent of those prophecies have already been fulfilled, and not just in some vague sense. You know, oftentimes people will say, well, there are other prophetic books out there, but there are no other religious writings that actually offer prophecy, and particularly to the degree that the Bible does. The, the, uh, there, there's really even many of the prophecies that say, for example, drive the Islamic jihadist movement aren't found in the Quran itself. The Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism doesn't have any prophecies of the future. It has a lot of stories, well, actually more myths. Uh, it reads more like a Marvel comic than it does any kind of religious book. But nonetheless, none of them really take the chance to say this is what's going to happen in specific and precise detail except the Bible. And so what we have is really kind of a control system. We can look at what the Bible has said in the past eight out of ten times, and we can see that every time it said something was going to happen, it came to pass just as it said it came to pass. In fact, for many years, critical scholars were so amazed at the accuracy of fulfilled biblical prophecy that they said, well, obviously these things were written after the events because they couldn't be that correct. And then things like the Dead Sea Scrolls came along, and we find suddenly that we have documents that are so antique, they're so old, that they know that there's no possible way they could have been written after the fact. They actually had to be predicting those, those events far in advance of them actually taking place. And so that's one of the reasons why we look at that last 20% of prophecy we'll be looking at through the month of January. What does the Bible say about where the future is going to be heading? And I want to emphasize again that on Wednesday nights, what we're going to be looking at is though the chronology of last time events, something that is really a puzzlement to many people because we don't have one book of the Bible that says chronological sequence of last day events. It would be so helpful if it did, but the point is we find it's in Daniel, it's in Revelation, it's in Matthew, it's in Luke, it's in Hosea, it's in Zechariah. And how do you separate and piece all that together into some kind of consistent and accurate flow? And I'm just here to tell you this morning, I alone have managed to accomplish this in human history. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you what it looks like to me. And I honor with great respect the right of others to be incorrect. But nonetheless, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at that. We're going to look at what are those events that are going to take place before the Great Tribulation, because the Great Tribulation is the central feature of much of the prophetic messages in the New Testament in particular. But what are the things that are leading up to it, or what Jesus called the signs of the times, those kind of external indicators we can look at and go, hey, this looks like we're heading in that direction. And secondly, what are those events that are terrifyingly described in such detail in the Bible called the Great Tribulation? And then finally, what happens after Christ returns, the second coming and the millennial reign of Christ and the new kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth? All of those things are important, I think, for us because as John put it, this is our hope. 
Paul described it as the hope of our calling. This is the thing that really should define who we are. Because the warning that Paul gave in 1 Corinthians 15 was, if our hope in Christ is in this life alone, we're men to be greatly pitied. I mean, if, if, it's, if serving Christ is just about what He can do for me, He can make me healthy, wealthy, and wise, uh, and many of us are sitting there going, man, not, not all that healthy, I'm not that wealthy, and I certainly haven't become any wiser, so <laughs> where's the payoff? If that is the objective of my life, then He said, you really deserve to be pitied, because the gospel and Christianity is not some positive mental attitude organization. We're not worshiping at the altar of Anthony Robbins or any other positive mental teacher. We're coming to the Word of God because we realize we live in a damaged, broken, sin-riddled world that is incurably warped, and the only solution is for a new heaven and a new earth in which Christ lives and reigns, and we live and reign with Him forever. That is our hope as believers. And that's why John said, every man that has that hope purifies himself. And so it's really, I think, important. And I think it's important in particular today because the study of biblical prophecy has fallen upon hard times. In the effort to become broader in our appeal to a larger segment of the community and to uh, attract more people with less um, intimidating messages, We've stayed away from a lot of what the Bible says will define the world that we're moving into because it's not pretty and it's not attractive. It's something that speaks about God's judgment. That it really, if you study prophecy, it has a very clear undertone to it and it's simply this, that God is going to hold people accountable for their sins. There is judgment. And you and I both understand this is not a terribly popular message today. Well, surprise, surprise, it's never been a popular message. But one of the things that Paul said in writing to the, or speaking to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he said, I never failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And I think we're in a challenging era in the church today where we want to say, focus on those things that, you know, will make friends and influence people. But that doesn't happen if you give to people the whole counsel of God. If you're honest and said, look, this is the full testimony of God from Genesis to Revelation. And so what we have here is a third of the Bible that talks about what is going to be happening. And many places have just chosen not to even talk about it. In fact, I had one pastor explain to me the reason he didn't teach on prophecy was because the people in his church hadn't figured out how to be better husbands and better fathers uh, and and better Christians in general. And I had to point out, well, the problem is that John said, but this is the hope that is of Christ's coming that actually does purify us. It does change what we're living for. Because what determines your behavior... By the way, I haven't even started my message. But what determines your behavior... (laughs) I apologize. You should sit in a staff meeting and watch what those guys have to go through. (laughs) They'll ask me a question. Do you like parakeets? And I'm gone for an hour. But but what what we need to understand is that whatever is the thing that we're looking for in the future, hoping for, the thing that we think is really critical to fulfillment and success in life is the thing that will determine our choices and our choices will establish our behavior. So is the hope of your calling Christ or is the hope of your calling a better life here and now? Well, 
<clears throat> that will determine what choices you make. And I think that Personally, this is my own opinion. I don't want to sound critical, but I feel like in the church, particularly in Western America, what we've done is we've moved so far into trying to help people live a better life and to, get, and to have their best life now that we've lost the sight of that this is not our hope. Oh, I don't. <laughs> I hope you have a good job. It pays well. You drive a decent car. You live in a nice home. You have heat on a day like today, and all those things. You know, I, I hope you have all things. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. I hope. I, I don't want to make come across like somehow we got to be anti-materialistic to be spiritual because being anti-materialistic is kind of a, a failing anyway because God created matter, so hating matter isn't really flowing with God. But the whole point is that at the same time, if that, if the material world is the driving passion of my life, not only will I be going in the wrong direction, but because I'm going in the wrong direction of my life, I'm going to be sorely disappointed when I get to where I'm going. Because when I find out, as someone once said, when you uh, don't know where you're going, or if you're going in the wrong direction, when you get there, you're going to find out you're someplace else. You'll never be able to get, and Jesus put it this way, ever searching but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. If the light that is in you is darkness, he said, how great is that darkness? And so I think it's critically important for you and I as Christians to define within our own hearts and minds, what is the ultimate goal of my life? And Paul said at the end of his last letter before he was executed, he said that those who have that hope, who long or yearn for his appearing, they're the ones who will see him. He will appear to those a second time, he said, who yearn for his appearing. So one of the things that we have to be challenged by, I feel I'm obligated to challenge you with, is if your heart is not yearning after being with him, then what is it that you're yearning for? And the serious question beyond that is, so do you really know him? Do you know him? Are you somebody who's convinced but not converted? Have you been Christianized but not transformed and changed? So all of that to say, let's begin by reading Isaiah 43. <laughs> Would you please stand with me? Since we started at 10, we can go to 4.30. <laughs> Beginning at verse 1, the prophet says, but now... This is what the Lord says, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. If you don't know, Jacob is just another name for Israel, the people of God. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you and I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Sheba for in your stead. And since you are precious and honored in my sight, because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. 
All the nations gathered together and the peoples assembled. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from the ancient days... I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland and to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Yet you have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have not wearied yourself for me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not brought any fragrant calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins, and wearied me with your offenses. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and remember your sins no more. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we reflect on this great prophetic word, this great passage, that your Holy Spirit would just allow your glory to reflect upon us, that our eyes will be open, our ears will be attentive, and that we will see, Lord, your way. We will understand your will. We pray for your grace in this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Chapter 43 of Isaiah may seem kind of innocuous because we tend to read through books like Isaiah without a real strong sense of context. We don't really kind of understand the historical dynamics, and it's almost like coming into the middle of somebody's conversation. They're describing details and events and conversations, but you don't know what led up to them, and so you don't really appreciate the value or the import of what might be being said at that particular moment. So when we read through books like Isaiah, which is this great prophetic message, I mean, here's a prophet who prophesied for over 60 years, and which, you know, had a lot, which makes it the largest prophetic book in the Bible. He had a lot of time to write it. But he's talking about a world that has gone through such tremendous and dramatic changes. And in the eyes of most historians, this particular moment was one of the most defining moments for the nation of Israel. 
It tracks not only the, the careers particularly of a series of kings of Judah, but particularly the, some of the greatest. King uh, Hezekiah, uh, King Manasseh, and of course it closes with the death of King Josiah. But essentially this, this transition from Hezekiah to Messiah, Manasseh, we go from one of the best, most godly kings of Judah to one of the most, well, the most wicked king. And, and there's an irony in his wickedness because not only was Manasseh, the son of this godly king Hezekiah, uh, such a wicked guy, but he lived and reigned longer than any of the other kings of Judah and Israel together. So he had a long time become really, really bad. Now the good news is at the end of his life, he repented and turned back to the Lord and then died shortly thereafter. But nonetheless, he brought an imprint upon the nation that became indelible and it defined who they were going to be from that point on. But let me t take us back a little bit in the story and talk about the reign of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah came to the throne as a child. His father had passed away. His father had been a wicked man and God took him really quickly. And so this young child is put on the throne being guided by the spiritual leaders, the priests, in a way that was redemptive. And through his reign, he began to bring tremendous change into the land. He, he eliminated a lot of the corruption that had come in spiritually and financially and, and morally and began to establish righteousness. We see the really the, the rise of the prophet Isaiah becoming a, a prominent counselor and advisor to the king. See, Israel was set up, and Judah were set up differently from other countries. Other countries had a king who told the prophet what to prophesy. But in Israel, you had a king who listened to the prophet and didn't tell the prophet what to do. The prophet told him what to do. He was an independent voice, unlike a lot of our political leaders today who kind of live in their own echo chamber. My wife was asking me to, about a particular politician. She says, doesn't he ever get embarrassed by some of this stuff? And I said, no, he's surrounded by sycophants who simply echo everything he says and tell him that anybody who doesn't agree with him is an idiot. It's kind of like my house. But the, the whole point is that, that that's not how Israel was. They had this independent voice, the prophets, who were not beholden to the king, and they told the king what God had to say, whether the king liked it or not. And oftentimes it had negative consequences, as it ultimately does for the prophet Isaiah. But Hezekiah listens. He allows himself to be shaped and formed and molded, and he begins crying out against the moral iniquity of the country. And the king can enforce things externally, but the people's hearts don't really change that much. That's where we get Jesus quoting from Isaiah, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's Isaiah speaking to his own generations about what was going on. So the king could enforce externally, but only God can change what's going on internally. Well, Hezekiah did a great job, and, but here's where the trap comes in. When, when you humble yourself in the Lord, before the Lord, God is going to bring his blessing, his prosperity, his success into your life. Hezekiah, because of his humility, began to experience tremendous success, tremendous prosperity, tremendous blessing, and his kingdom began to grow. And as David Roper put it so well, he said that success plants the bitter seeds of failure. 
I don't care who you are, and I've lived long enough to see it in just about everybody I know, including myself, that when you come to these certain pinnacles of success, even in ministry, there is a subtlety of pride that begins to settle in on the lower levels of your being that almost unseen and undisclosed to your own thinking that begin to sabotage because you're walking in the arrogance or the pride of your own sufficiency and not in your dependence upon God. And the bottom line was Hezekiah just became really proud. And there came a moment with the Assyrian Empire, where in this, and Isaiah lived through the rise and fall of three great empires, a period of almost 300 years in which these empires ruled the world. It started with the Assyrians, followed by the Babylonians, and ultimately with the Persians who destroyed the Babylonians. But as Assyria is reigning uh, over all these countries, suddenly the king becomes very sick, he dies, civil war breaks out in Assyria, and all of the surrounding nations which had been under the heavy tax burden of Assyria began to break loose. The first thing they did, they stopped paying their taxes. The next thing they did is they started preparing for the eventual invasion from Assyria that was ultimately to come. And we find that Hezekiah actually begins to build somewhat of an empire. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been defeated by the Assyrians, carried away in 721 BC. They were gone, and so now he has a chance to take over their territories. But slowly the Assyrians got their act back together, and a new king came to power, a guy by the name of Sennacherib, and he began to recapture and bring under his authority once again those countries that had rebelled. He crushed the Babylonians, he crushed the Persians, he crushed the Arameans, he crushed the Hittites, he crushed, he just started moving down the rope until finally he came to Judah. And you see, it wasn't like it happened overnight. Things didn't move quickly. This had been foreseen for years. And so Hezekiah had been busily preparing. We have great works even in Jerusalem today that are indications of Hezekiah's preparations. We have a thing called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's a, a tunnel 1,750 feet long that goes through solid rock. It reaches from the Gahon Springs, which is the water source of Jerusalem outside of the city, cuts right through the rock, sometimes 100, 150 feet deep under the surface, and ends up coming out into the valley on the other side, and it was a pool of fresh water, all built for one purpose, to prepare for the siege of the city so they have fresh water to drink when the, when the Assyrians came. There's another place as you walk through the old city of Jerusalem, you'll find what they call the Broad Wall. It was a whole wall that he had built to re-fortify the western hillside. And it's really broad wall, that's what they call it broad. And it's interesting that one of the things that the prophet Isaiah had said to him when he began to panic about the invasion of the Assyrians, he said to King Hezekiah, not an arrow will enter into the city. So you're talking about the most powerful military force that had crushed everyone in there before them. In fact, by the time the Assyrian armies reached the city of Jerusalem, 46 fortified cities of Judea had been decimated. One of the decimations of the city of Lachish is portrayed on a stele, a stone wall carving in the British Museum even today. If you go there, you can see the accounts of the whole siege of the city, and it's somewhat terrifying what we know about what took place. 
So everybody is being decimated. Nobody can stand before him. And suddenly Hezekiah falls on his face before God, sends an embassy to Isaiah the prophet and said, seek God's face and find out what's going to happen to us. And Isaiah sends back a word from the Lord and says, because he is blasphemous, because Sennacherib has blasphemed me, he will not enter this city, but I will put a hook in his mouth and I will draw him back to Babylon or back to Persia. Excuse me, back to Assyria or someplace. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I would blame it on jet lag, but I'm just losing my mind. <laughs> but the, and then he says, this amazing, not an arrow will enter into the city. I mean, any old guy could pull back an arrow and shoot it and land it on the other side of the wall. And yet the excavators say that when they've dug around both sides, the inside wall where it's inside the city and the outside of the wall, outside of the city, they have found all sorts of arrowheads, even a helmet, an Assyrian army helmet, on the ground, outside, under the excavations. But they'd never been able to find a single arrow or weapon or lance that came into the city. Because what happened? Well, God said, I'll put a hook in your mouth. You'll hear a rumor. He hears a rumor that the Egyptians are coming up to make war with him. He breaks off the siege to confront the Egyptians. And over the night, it says the angel of the Lord came and destroyed them. The historians say maybe it was bubonic plague or something else. But all we know is the next morning he wakes up and 185,000 of his men lie dead in their beds. His army is decimated. That's not just something we suggest it's something that history tells us happened and so he was forced to retreat in fact a prophet even went on to say that he would die in his own land and he did he was murdered by two of his sons after he got back to Assyria all of this was transpiring in the context of what was happening and really changed Hezekiah's life in fact he's a man pretty broken and surrendered to God and then he becomes very ill He's near death, and he pleads that God would save his life, and so God does, and he lives for another 15 years. He has a miraculous healing. The only downside is that in that 15 years, he had a son by the name of Manasseh. And we don't know much about him, how Manasseh became as evil as his father was good. But listen to how how it describes uh, his reign. It says in in 2 Kings 21, it says, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices, referring to the Canaanites and people who had gone before. He rebuilt the high places, that is the altars and places of worship his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He erected altars to Baal and he made an Asherah pole, which is an Asherah pole we believe is actually a kind of a phallic symbol, which is uh, because a lot of Baal worship was uh, very sensual and hedonistic. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord on which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire In other words, human sacrifice. Practiced sorcery and divination. Consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple, of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And then it says this, but the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray 
so that they did more evil than, their, than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. In response, we're told that the Lord sent prophets, as He always did. Prophets were sent not to tell people how bad they are, but to give them an opportunity to repent and be delivered from the judgment that was coming. It goes on to say, the Lord said through His servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites, which would be the Canaanites who preceded him, and he has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle, and I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes out a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their own enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their foes because they have done evil in my eyes and have provoked me to anger. Manasseh's response was that this was a threat to his kingdom. He, he couldn't tolerate prophets saying that he was bad and he was doing bad things. And so he had to respond. It says in verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. And beside the th sin that he had caused Judah to commit, so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's interesting, even one of the victims who died at Manasseh's hand was the prophet Isaiah. Remember that passage in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, 37, where it said those who died in faith and some of them were sawn in half? We're told that that's how uh, Isaiah died, that they stretched him out and they took a saw and they just literally cut him in half. And it wasn't any circus trick, you know. It wasn't any magician. They just simply cut him in half, disemboweling him in effect. The problem with all of this is that God had a covenant relationship with Israel. Basically, it was terms of agreement. If you honor me, I'll bless you. And if you don't honor me, then judgment will fall upon you. It's a simple principle that really is applicable to life in general. Paul put it to the Galatians this way. He says, you're going to reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. It's not necessarily even something that God says, I have to inject myself to make your life miserable. Many people think it's like that. They think that God gets mad at us and he punishes us almost kind of punitively and, and, and immaturely, but that's not at all what, what the Bible's describing. The Bible says is I, God is a protective wall against consequences. He saves us from a lots of things. So that as my wife were, were driving home last night, you know, I was, I was praying as we were driving. I said, Lord, thank you for keeping us safe on the journey. Thank you for there not be a snowstorm as they had predicted that we have to drive through. And now all you have to do is get us home safely because the most important thing for me is to be home when the ball drops at midnight. So, no, not, not seriously. For those of you who don't, aren't familiar with my weird ways. Uh, but you realize that life is a the world is a dangerous place. Accidents happen. Disease happens. There are all sorts of things that just happen because we live in a fallen and broken world. And so when things happen to us that are negative, people oftentimes say, well, why is God doing this to me? Well, God may not be doing it at all. 
But he may be allowing it to happen, or even worse, it may be happening because you have stepped out of his covering of grace. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he talks about the man who is committing sexual immorality with his stepmother, and he says, this is my counsel to him. Kick him out of the church, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Note he didn't say, deliver him to one of my angels for the destruction. Deliver him to Satan. In other words, if he wants to live for the devil, then let him see what the reward is for living for the devil. That he might sorrow to repentance. So that you see, Israel lived in an extremely dangerous neighborhood. The land of Israel was simply a land bridge that connected the northern empires to the southern empire of Egypt. And those empires were at war all the time. And the promise of God was, if you humble yourself and serve me, I'll close the highway and they won't be able to cross through your country and wreak havoc. Because most of the time Israel was invaded, it wasn't because somebody wanted to control Israel, they just wanted to get down the road. It's kind of like traveling across country. Why else would you drive through South Dakota? You know, you don't have anything against South Dakota. You just want to get past it. I'm sorry if you're from South Dakota. But then again, if you're here, you know the answer to that anyway. But (laughs) the whole point is, God says, I will block the roads and they won't come through and reap havoc. But if you disobey me, I'll just simply open the gate. And that's what happened to Israel. When they became lifted up in pride, and then they began to embolden themselves to do things that God says, thou shalt not, and arrogated themselves the freedom to dishonor him, especially, he says, I'll just let them come through you. And so God had said, I'm going to, I may have destroyed the Assyrians, but I'll raise up another hammer of judgment, and that will be the Babylonians, and they will come and they will take you captive. But keep in mind that as we're reading this prophecy, This is one of the last things that the prophet Isaiah would write. It was for this kind of thing that he ultimately is executed because he says what you're doing is wrong. The principle that was stated so earlier in Exodus and again in in Deuteronomy and the end of Leviticus, but again in Joshua, when Joshua said to Israel when they took the land, he says, if you violate the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. He said, the land itself will just eat you alive. I won't have to do a thing. And so that's what happened. And that's why I find it's interesting that as he begins to address them in this prophecy, He begins by saying, fear not, I am with you. Fear not. And you have to put that in a context. They had every reason to be very, very afraid. Not only were they threatened by empires surrounding them on other side that were waiting to gobble them up, but even their own king had become so predatory and so dangerous and so threatening to them that their very lives were at risk. They lived in a fearful circumstances. There were fears, there were things to be afraid of all around them, even more so than you may think you have to be afraid today in the world in which we live. But he goes on and he says, I don't want you to live anymore in fear. I will do this. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. In other words, those who had already been taken as captives to Assyria and those who eventually will be carried away as captives to Babylon, I will bring them back. And I will say to the north, 
Give them up and to the south do not hold them back, which would be Egypt. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, and everyone who is called by my name. When you pass through the waters, you see many men were put on ships and carried away as slaves. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they were made to cross rivers to go into foreign lands, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, the flames will not set you ablaze. Now here's an important concept. All of those circumstances are unfun things. The waters, the, he's talking about the flooding waters, the overwhelming streams, the fires, the, the destruction. He says, when you're going through all of these terrible circumstances, I am with you. Let me illustrate it with a pathetically silly story of my own humanity. As we were, my wife and I's plan was to jump on a plane early Christmas morning and fly to Nashville and knock on my kid's door with ribbons and bows on our heads and have the grandkids open the doors and surprise them because grandpa and grandma showed up on Christmas Day. If you're a grandparent, you get this. If you're not, you're just really concerned, okay? But if you're a grandparent, this makes all the sense in the world. Silliness becomes a part of life. And we get to the airport, and the first thing they, well, your flight is delayed. And you start that journey, you know? Well, it's going to be delayed a little longer. Your, your connection in Seattle might be a little close. Well, your connection in Seattle isn't going to work, so we're going to reroute you. <laughs> You're going to go to Seattle, but then you're going to go to Denver, and then you get to go to Nashville, and you're getting in there about 8 o'clock at night, and the kids are in bed, and, and then you put your luggage on there, because my wife had loaded it up with goodies, and she says, well, this is too heavy. It weighs 51 pounds. And I said, listen, you've already canceled our flight. You've rerouted us. We missed Christmas with our grandkids and, and our, gra and our grandchildren, and can't you just let it slide for a pound? <laughs> Nope, that's our policy. And I realized that moment, here was somebody who had to work on Christmas Day and was not happy. <laughs> and so I just showed him Christian love. Was any of you there? Oh, okay, I just showed him Christian love. I just, I just showed grace. <laughs> I mean, I'm honest, I was ticked off. And I chose that word because I can't use the one I wanted to use. And so we have to go out there and tear everything open. We're going through this whole thing. It was, just, it was just really irritating. The whole thing was just really irritating. And you begin to get frustrated. And I'm sitting there the whole time going, wait a minute. God is God of the universe. He has it all under control. For whatever reasons, God doesn't want us to do this. And I don't know. And I'm trying to rationalize myself and talk myself into being a man of grace, a man who trusts God. It didn't work, but I had the right idea. But I say that because you've been there in the same petty ways I have, but you may be in the deep throes right now of something far more difficult. And you're sitting here saying, I'm going to drown. I'm going to be consumed. This thing's going to eat me alive. I'm not going to survive this. There's no way out of it. And that's where these people are at. They are between a rock and a hard place. There's no fixing this. There's, there's no solution. There is no way out of it. And God says, maybe you have failed, but I haven't. 
Maybe you have changed for the worse, but I'm always changing things for the best. And he explains to them why he's going to bless them. He says, first of all, I want you to understand, I have created you. You are mine. You're a people who I formed for myself. And this is kind of an amazing concept that we lose sight of many times. That you are here right now sucking air. Your, Your heart is pumping blood right now for one simple reason. God says, I created you. You are mine. You belong to me. That's, that's why you're here. You know, we look in the mirror and say, I'm getting old or, or I'm getting uglier. Or you may even be saying, I've always been uglier and it's just getting worse. <laughs> you know, we, we do this thing. We live in this image conscious culture where people worry about what they look like to, the, to the, such the nth degree. It's nauseating. And we sit there and get obsessed with this kind of stuff. And we can begin to say, why didn't I get a different nose? And my answer is, don't get it cut up. It's the one God gave you. Don't puff your lips up. Don't do that stuff because that's not who God created you to be. Where's the freedom just to be who God made you to be? Because you see, it's not going to get better. I don't care. You don't get prettier with age. At least not physically. You have to begin to start with this thing. Wait a minute. Why am I who I am in this moment in time, in the circumstances I'm in? Because God the Father created me. I belong to Him. He has formed me the way I am because it serves Him and it pleases Him for me to be who I am. You know, until you can come to a peace with that, now don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you shouldn't diet and exercise and live a sane life, give up smoking and all those kind of things. Of course you should do those stuff. But I'm talking about something more, more essential where we really so dislike who we are that we wish there were two of somebody else and none of ourselves. That we live our lives on, under that constant rubric of I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not fast enough, I'm not rich enough, I'm not talented enough, I'm not, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough. And... and And I'm not arguing that point. That's probably true. But you have enough of what God wants you to be enough in. And that's really what it comes down to. That as as, uh, I think Steve made the comment to me the other day, Steve Nickman made the comment to me the other day, he says, just do what you're good at. I thought, well, that's novel insight. Because don't we get in trouble when we try to do things that we're not good at? My son had this new vehicle and the headlight was out. And he was asking me, he says, is that something that you can just fix yourself? <laughs> I said, if you'd asked me that 30 years ago, I'd say, sure. Today I lift the hood and I don't even know what I'm looking at. And when I looked at the bulb, I thought, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> don't touch it, I said. Just be like smarter than I was. Don't touch it. It's way above your pay grade. And so we get ourselves in trouble because we think we're supposed to be something that we're never designed or intended by God to be, but we are designed, intended by God God to be something unique and wonderful and creative just right where we're at. And to be able to embrace that is that this is who God has made me to be. But secondly, he says, I love you. 
You are precious and honored in my sight. I love you. You are precious and honored in my sight. Do you feel that God loves you? Or do you feel that God is conspiring against you? Does your own guilt and shame make you feel like God is conspiring against you and He's just waiting for you to mess it up again because you always mess it up and there you go again? Or do you believe that God looks at you and says, you're, you're precious? After spending six days with my grandkids, my wife said, I need some downtime. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, whoa, that little boy's got way too much testosterone in his system, way too much, right? But they're so precious to me. Now the people sitting at the table next to us were probably going crazy, but it was precious to me. And when we walk outside and he has that balloon and he says, I want to take it off the string. I think there's a five-year-old kid. I want to take it off and let it go so it can fly up to Jesus. <laughs> Here's a 50. Go buy yourself a toy. <laughs> I mean, it's just like <laughs> you lose all perspective, right? It's all God. Do you understand how precious you are to the Lord? Do you believe that with all your heart? How precious you are. He looks at you and says, I love you. I love you. I, I just, I find pleasure in just looking at you. But thirdly, he says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I blot out your transgressions, not because you earned it, but I have blotted them out and I will not remember your sins. Because beside me, there is no Savior. I, I, I've wiped the sleep clean. I'm not hung up on what you did. Now, this is hard for us to grasp because you and I have trouble letting go of people's trespasses, don't we? Somebody trespasses against us. We have such a hard time of letting them go. And, and we try to let go of them. We say, oh, give me a forgiving heart. And I forget about that. And then something will happen. And it'll, it'll somehow percolate back up to the surface of your mind. And you can wrestle with an, with an offense for decades maybe even lifetimes. And God simply says, I don't have that problem. I blot your sins out and I don't remember them. I could remember them if I wanted them, but I choose not to remember them. It's purposeful forgetfulness. Why? Because fourthly, he said to him, you are my witness. He said this twice. And this is interesting. He says, not witnesses in because I've chosen you to go out and tell everybody about me. He said, but the way that I deal with your life when it's good and when it's bad, when it's holy and it's unholy, the way that I deal with you is a witness to the world of who I am. As Paul said, we can do nothing against the truth. We can only do, do things that establish the truth. So even in your rebellion, you give witness to me. I've created you to be a witness to me in the world. There's a concept that's hard for us to get our mind around. Because again, we are so convinced that we're only a witness for God if we're behaving in the right way. I mean, we did read that book on evangelism. We did take that course on how to be a witness for Jesus. We did read all that stuff about how to you know, represent Christianity in a way that brings glory to God. Da, 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 da. And so when we set out with this new set of legalisms that are taught to us as techniques, with the implied idea that if I go out to share my faith and I do it well and somebody responds positively, then I have really served God. And isn't that wonderful because I've been a witness for Jesus. But if I get really ticked off at the woman behind the counter at the airport, 
Now suddenly I've blown my witness. And this is classic. So I'm standing there at the gate. The guy walks at me and goes, aren't you Pastor Ken? <laughs> I said, no, I'm his evil twin brother. <laughs> he looks nothing like me. <laughs> Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> oh, that was bad enough. He, he said, I just wanted to introduce myself. I said, okay, praise God. And then we get in the plane. He's sitting right across from me. By the way, <laughs> turned out good. It was good. It was a good, great conversation. But God simply says, don't you understand that because you belong to me, good, bad, and ugly, you're my witness. You get proof. And that's why he says finally in closing, he says this, so forget the former things. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Forget the former things and do not dwell on the past. Isn't that easy to do? Do you find yourself going there all the time? Man, if I just hadn't made that choice, then I wouldn't be in this situation. Do not dwell on the past. Learn from it and then let it go. Why? Because God says, for I am doing a new thing. God says, I'm doing something that you can't point to and say, oh yeah, I got this. No, he says, forget about the past because it's not relevant. I, who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, who flung the universe from my fingertips and suddenly it was there when there had never been anything like it ever before, I, who did that, am continuing to do that in your life. I'm going to do something that nobody else has ever done before. I'll make a way in the desert, which essentially he's talking about the great Arabian desert, the impassable desert and streams in the wasteland. He says, the wild animals will be thanking me because now they have water. This, I'm going to do this impossible thing. I'm going to make life thrive where there is no life. I will make the barren bare. And he gives us one phrase, because I will provide. And so you and I go through things and we ask the question, well, God, how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to solve this problem? How are you going to fix this? And if we sit back quietly and just listen to God, he's going to give us an answer. He says, I'm going to do a new thing. You mean like this other thing? No, I'm going to do a new thing. You mean it's going to kind of look like, no, it's going to be a new thing. But I mean, you, in the past, you, no, I'm going to do a new thing. You see, God is in the business of doing something that has never been seen before. And he wants to do it in you and he wants to do it through you. And he wants to do it in such a way that none of us can sit back and say, well, it was all the Lord, but then he did use me. It was his inspiration and my intellect. It was his passion, but my skill. It was his wisdom, but my intellect. No. You're going to step back and go, I did not see that coming. <laughs> I, I did not see, I don't know how you did that. I don't know even where that came from, but I did not see that coming. That has to be God. One of my favorite stories in the gospel, I apologize, I say that about every story in the gospel, but at this moment, one of my favorite stories in the gospel, in Matthew 8, where Jesus calms the, the storm, 
I love the story because maybe I see myself so much in it. I've been on the Sea of Galilee when storms have come up, and man, I've seen those 10, 12-foot waves suddenly go from a flat water to these huge waves that are crashing over the boat, and the boatman's trying to get to shore as quickly as he possible so he doesn't sink with a bunch of tourists on board. And Jesus is launching out onto the Sea of Galilee and such a storm comes up. It has something to do with the, the geography of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the Sea of Galilee. Cold air, hot air, elevations, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and these storms can come up just like this. Boom, they're there. And they come and they're doing everything they can to keep the boat afloat. Maybe kind of like you're doing right now in your life. You're doing everything you can to keep the boat afloat. You're bailing, you're praying, you're here this morning because rather than setting up for the football game because you're bailing and you're hoping maybe this will help bail. And it isn't, isn't helping. The more water you throw out, it seems like the more water that's coming in. And out of desperation, they wake Jesus up. I always think about that. <laughs> Waking Jesus up. Jesus is sleeping in the boat. He's totally chill. They wake him up and they ask this really bad question. Lord, don't you care that we're going to drown? You ever prayed that prayer? I have. Lord, don't you care? Jesus just gets up, stands on the deck of the boat, says, peace, be still. The wind stops, the waves, the sea goes flat. He goes back, curls up on his couch, goes back to sleep. And they ask this wonderful question. Who is this guy? <laughs> that even the wind and the waves listen to him. Well, let me tell you who he is. He's the God who created you and made you for himself. He's the God who says, I love you. In your precious and honored in my sight. He is the God who says, I have blotted out all of your transgressions and forgiven you. He is the one who says, stop dwelling on the past and step back and watch what I'm going to do. That's who he is. The same one. And that's, is it a greater thing to say to winds and waves to stop? Or is it a greater thing for him to make waves in the desert? Well, the answer is simply this. God says, I want you to understand the reason I give you the word of prophecy is so you'll know that when it happens, that I did it. That I did it. And when you look at the uncertainty of the future, you can be in that place of not being afraid because I am with you. Be not afraid. Do not be fearful. Why? Because I am with you. Father, I pray that you would help us to kind of brand or tattoo that thought in our brain that there's no necessity for us to be people who are controlled by fear and shame, to feel inadequate or insecure or feel like we just don't ever measure up and therefore we're not good enough because you've simply said, I am with you that you enjoy being with us, that you enjoy spending time with us, Lord, that you find pleasure in us. We are precious to you. 
and your promises that we won't drown, and we won't be burnt up, and we won't be forgotten and left behind. But you are with us. Grant us such grace and wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we continue for a few more moments, we invite you to partake of the elements of communion. What a great time to share from the Lord's table as we come to the end of an eventful year. Um, and we look forward to a, another year that will certainly be as or more eventful than the one that we just survived. But for you and I as the children of God, we're going to do more than survive. We're going to be witnesses for Him. And we're going to be witnesses not because we get it right this time. We're going to be witnesses because God has chosen us. He's made us for Himself. And He's going to give us, He's going to take us and use us to be a witness of Him, for Him and for His glory. That I'm going to prove not only that God can give grace to overcome the greatest obstacles, but I can also come to prove that God can give grace to forgive the greatest failures. That my God isn't hindered by my failures any more than he's helped by my successes. Because he simply said, there's no one who can restrain me from the accomplishment of my will. And so as we partake of these elements, what we do is we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord that if we're going to be lifted up in this life, it's going to be him who's lifting us up and not we who have managed to climb to the top of the ladder through our own sweat and energy. And that we can sit in our times of blessing and say, Lord, all glory to you and all praise to your name. So I invite you to partake of the elements. If you need prayer regarding anything, myself and some others will be available up here to pray with you. But let's just spend these last few moments really kind of recalibrating our souls around some new truths or some forgotten truths to repent of our fearfulness and to simply say, God, I trust you because you are with me. Regardless, you are with me.